So we were gonna, we're going to jump right into cases, and hopefully we can try to apply some of these um, new regimens that we, we've just talked about to a couple of cases. Um, so we'll start. So this first case is a 63-year-old man, prior history of IDU, but not recent, um, quite remote, in fact, uh, referred after a recent diagnosis of HCV by screening by um, his PCP. He's asymptomatic, feels well. He has diabetes type 2 and hypertension. This shows you his labs. So AST 75, ALT 89, bilirubin 0.9, creatinine 0.8, and a platelet count of 145. You have his HCV RNA here at 4 million and um, an HIV test that's negative. That was also done by the PCP. So first question is, what other testing do you need before you can start treatment? Or do you have what you need? Genotype. There you go. Excellent. So you definitely need a genotype to know how you're going to treat them. Because even though we have a pangenotypic regimen, um, and you could argue that since you have a pangenotypic regimen, um, that if, in fact, you knew that that was the formulary, that there would be some potential that you wouldn't need it. Um, because GP is actually approved in treatment naive patients eight weeks um, across the board if they don't have cirrhosis, remember, and if they do have cirrhosis, 12 weeks. So if that's your preferred based on costs from your formulary, maybe you could actually get away with not doing that, and it really depends on what you're going to have access to. So then, aha, excellent. So the next question was, are you ready to treat? And you're saying, no, I'm not, um, because we just talked about the fact that if you are going to treat him, you need to know whether or not he has cirrhosis, right? Um, because the treatment is going to change even for this treatment-naive patient depending on whether or not he has cirrhosis. So it's a critical, critical question to make sure you choose the right regimen and the right length of treatment. So that's perfect. You guys are all over this. Okay. So uh, this is a summary slide that I put in about what do you need to think about and in what order as you make decisions about treatment. And we were just talking about that. You know, it's, it's amazing when you talk about seven FDA-approved regimens and this thing, there's so many options, but it's amazing how quickly, depending on your patient and their comorbidities and their drug interactions, how quickly you get down to, like, a single option, you know? Um, and so genotype and subtype, as I mentioned, for some particular patients, there may be, may be no need if you know what your formulary is, and I think the GP regimen is a good example of that. But this, the recommendation is still in this day and age where if you were to just look at treatment recommendations for a treatment-naive 1A, 1B, 2, 3, it is different. Um, and so for that reason, there is still a recommendation to genotype. Cirrhosis, yes, no. This is a critically important question, right? Important for two reasons. One is because of length of treatment. Um, and then two is because those patients need to be managed in the long term for their liver disease, as you just mentioned, with liver cancer screening, et cetera, right? Prior treatment experience. So you've just heard about those different boxes that we have to put people into depending on whether or not they've they previously failed. And this is where you saw some of the complexities of having, it's great to have all these options, but as we get more options for these different treatment failures and salvage regimens, it gets a bit more complex, um, and then is resistance testing required? Um, and so really, if you think about the guidelines 
and where we are moving forward, there is still a regimen that is recommended, uh, which is the albizvir grazoprevir regimen that requires NS5A baseline testing um, to make a decision on whether or not you need to either do a different regimen if there's an NS5A RAS or extend treatment to 16 weeks in adribavirin. It's a great regimen recommended for 12 weeks in, in many of the patient populations that you'll see in the guidelines. Um, and then the other stuff is what's their renal function, right? So we have approvals that depend on whether or not the patient's GFR is less than 30 or if they're on NSAGE or if they're on dialysis. Liver function. So this very critical point that it, I've seen this happen a, a numerous times where a child pub cirrhotic cannot get a protease inhibitor containing hepatitis C regimen, um, and they can look like a pretty normal, healthy person, right? Um, so you've got to get in that habit once you think this patient has cirrhosis of calculating the child pu score and knowing that child pu BC equals no protease inhibitor containing DEA regimens. And then drug interactions are the last critical piece to this. And some of these, as I mentioned, are kind of sneaky, like these PPIs that keep coming, becoming an issue for us. Um, so in this patient's case, he is a genotype 2. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but some of our newer infections that we're seeing in our young people, sadly, are increasingly geno 3, at least in North Carolina. Um, his OPRI scores, remember this is the AST to platelet ratio index, is 1.1. So how helpful is that? Not very, right? So this is in that range for an OPRI score where you could almost flip a coin <laughs> um, to get it right or wrong. So what I, what I would say is that in this patient, um, you really need something more to help understand whether or not he has cirrhosis. Um, and remember, I think I said this, um, his um, platelet count is 145. Dr. Sherman, what do you think about that? <laughs> Boo. Um, so, uh, I, you know, when I interact with residents and fellows and trainees, I always talk about my rule of thumb. I have lots of rules of thumb. And I, I don't really like it when I see platelet counts less than 150. Um, and that makes me nervous that this patient has cirrhosis. Okay, and so, um, and then you see his meds, amlodipine, globuride, aspirin, atorvastatin, omiprazole. What's the chances that our DAAs are going to have interactions with these? And this is, I mean, how many of you have patients who are literally on these five medications? I mean, it's like I've, at the VA, right? Yeah, pretty frequently, right? So, so these are the things that we have to think about as our list of seven can pretty quickly get to a smaller number. Um, important questions to ask. So one is, I don't like that a pre-score. So remember, if it's less than 0.4, you're over 90% confident you've rolled out cirrhosis. If it's greater than 2, you're over 90% confidence you can roll in cirrhosis. And if you're anywhere in between, your chances of being correct is somewhere in the 70 to 80% range. That's a pretty big deal when you're trying to make a decision in particular of using 8 versus 12 weeks um, of doing liver cancer screening and that sort of thing. And to me, that platelet count should be a red flag for you that maybe we have a problem here, okay? Um, and then this gets into the issues, and, and a big question here, of course, is dosing. How much omiprazole is this patient on? Um, and I'll make it easy. We'll say it's 20 milligrams. <laughs> um, and then we'll talk about that as well. Okay, so, so I will tell you, in this patient's case, um, oh, please tell me I didn't just start the clock. Did I just mess something up? Maybe. In this patient's case, we did get a fiber scan. Um, so in, 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 in our practice, we do calculate our pre-score at everyone because it's free, essentially. I mean, it's free in that you already paid for the GI panel and you already paid for the platelet count, so you might as well calculate it. And then we 
we do fiber scans in every single one of our patients. Um, and we try to get some concordance, but my suspicion going in for this guy was that he had cirrhosis and his, his fiber scan was 16.2 kilopascals, consistent with cirrhosis. Eight of soft Velvox, okay, treatment naive, genotype 2, cirrhotic, right? Eight of GP, eight of soft Velvox, 12 of GP, 12 of soft Vel, okay? Um, or Daxoff for 12 weeks. You guys got that? So what do you want to use? So now we'll start the clock. Rolling Stones, I even know that. <laughs> that is pre-Sesame Street. <laughs> All right, so what do you guys want to do here for this genotype 2 patient? So... So 17% said eight weeks for GP, but remember this patient has cirrhosis and we cannot use eight weeks in patients with cirrhosis. 9% um, said soft Velvox for eight weeks, but remember soft Velvox is not approved for eight weeks, period. When you think soft Velvox, think 12 weeks, 12 weeks. Uh, when you think GP, think eight, 12, or 16. Um, so GP for 12 weeks. Sounds reasonable, right? It's a cirrhotic patient. They're treatment naive. It's geno 2. It's pangenotypic, 12 weeks in a cirrhotic. I'd say that makes sense. And then soft vel for 12 weeks, right? So that would work. And 26% of you said yes to soft vel for 12 weeks in this patient with cirrhosis, and that would be appropriate. Um, and then Daxoff for 12 is also allowable in this genotype 2 patient, right? Harder to get two companies, two drugs, two copays. Um, but I would say three of the answers here, and actually Daxoff really for 12 weeks for his cirrhosis is probably not such a good idea. Um, so the answers here really should be three or four, right? And you can see that that's exactly where most of you came in here on this. So again, we looked at this slide before, right? Eight weeks for GP in treatment naive or PEG riba failures. If they have cirrhosis, you go 12, right? Genotype 2, doesn't get much better than that. Cirrhotics, we talked about that. Um, the soft alpatosphere question, right? This is why it didn't get that eight-week approval, because it didn't meet in the eight versus 12-week study for soft felvox. It did not meet the, 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 the non-inferiority margin because of these genotype 1A patients. And while the FDA took a different study, which was the Polaris 4, and pulled out 1As and pulled out 3s um, in terms of approval. They did not do the same for the eight-week regimen, okay, probably because they didn't feel that there was a need. And so we don't have an eight-week approval with this regimen, right? And we don't have a treatment-naive approval with this regimen. So remember, Softvelvox is only approved in patients for salvage, right? either non-NS5A, DAA, combination salvage, or NS5A salvage. So soft box would not be a go here. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I definitely think soft box salvage, GP, treatment naive, and some salvage. And I think if you think of it that way, it, it gets a little bit easier to split these, these two apart. Um, and this was, again, I think we'll, we'll move through this, but, um, but this shows you um, where the 8 versus 12 came in. All right, so the drug-drug interactions, I think, in some ways become the issue here, right? Um, 
So not surprising because of the protease inhibitor, we get into a lot of drug-drug interactions with the GP regimen, and this will be the same for soft Velvox. These PIs don't not only become issues for liver disease patients, but they definitely bring into the game issues around drug-drug interactions. And to be honest with you, the main issue that we get into is not so much what these drugs do to other drugs, it's what other drugs do to them, right? Um, although there's, there's different examples of this, but not recommended includes, not surprising, this list is true for a lot of these DAAs, right? The anticonvulsant, St. John's wort, rifampin. But remember these, um, the antiretrovirals, this patient's monoinfected, but no efavirenz, no adazanavir, no darunavir, no lopinavir um, for these regimens. And remember, we had that concern about the bucidalbitegravir because, especially in cirrhotic patients, because of the increased exposures. Cannot use atorvastatin, lovastatin, simvastatin. What was this patient on? Atorva. So what would you do in this case? Would you go with GP and get rid of the atorva for eight weeks? Would you go with the soft vel and continue? Yeah. I mean, the beauty is you can do either, right? And either would be totally fine. Um, I don't think interrupting atorvastatin for eight weeks is going to, you know, increase this patient's risk of a cardiovascular event. So that's a perfectly legitimate consideration in this setting. Um, what I wouldn't do is switch him to some, you know, um, uh, suboptimal statin and then not put him back on what would be considered a true um, high-potency statin. That probably would not be a good idea. Um, I'd rather interrupt. So then the amiprazole comes in. So does anyone know the story of amiprazole and GP? So the bottom line is, if you look at the package insert, um, and, and PPIs were allowed in this study, but I believe it was at a max of 20 milligrams. And if you look at the issue here is that you need acid to absorb this drug, just like you do for the valpatosphere um, as well, right? So you need acid. Acid suppressants are going to decrease absorption of the NS5A, okay? Um, and so in this case, with 40 milligrams of amiprazole, you get a, about a 50% decrease in exposure here. That, that's a problem. Um, with 20 milligrams, the decrease looked to be in the 20 30% range. So that's clearly in the package insert. Um, but what the FDA lists here is the list of drugs that are allowable is amiprazole um, and with no dosing. Uh, whatsoever in terms of the guidance, okay? So it's really important for the providers to know that anything more than 20 milligrams looks quite problematic. Um, and the question is, what do you do with that? As you all know, that same issue exists for soft vel and for soft velvox. Um, again, you cannot use more than 20 milligrams, and then the dosing, right, is around uh, a patient's fasting, et cetera. So, so this issue exists at a 20 milligram level for all three of these regimens. Yes, yes, so you can. And if you look for all three of them, um, the, the, with the H2 blockers, it actually is better. There's still a risk. It's better. You would want to dose them 12 hours apart. Um, um, you would, trying to interrupt is probably best, to be honest with you. I mean, you guys know the data that went into the whole lead soft, um, or the, um, the, the whole issue with lidipasphere sophosphorus, which was the first NS5A where this came up. Um, and it was pretty clear, I think, um, by the data that 20 milligrams is okay as long as it's dosed appropriately per the package insert. But once you get higher dosing, 40 milligrams, BID, and once you get into patients in particular with cirrhosis, then you have some issue. 
Um, and, and I almost view it as one of those many things that you could start adding up that can increase your risk of relapse, right? So I think this is all, all very much the same. What I try to do for most of my patients is I try to interrupt them. I give them four weeks, see how they do, um, and then add back an H2 blocker if necessary um, at a particular time of day so that we can control it. And mustard. I try mustard. Anyone here do mustard for heartburn? That, all my patients do it. They look at me like I'm crazy when I'm like, have you tried mustard? Because I hear it works. <laughs> They're like, for how many? Teaspoons? Tablespoons? I'm like, I have no idea. That part I'm not sure of. But. So if the Zantac don't work, then what do you go to? So the bottom line is, I think this gets a little bit easier with eight weeks than it does something else. Um, and I think it also gets to risk. Like I do truly have patients who can't come off 40 BID, and they really do get dilated. And I think in that case, you've got to find a different option. I think it's easier to interrupt for eight than 12, than 16, than 24, obviously. Um, but I also don't think we should necessarily have patients who are in severe pain from their daily heartburn if that's how bad it is. So I think this becomes... It becomes a bit of a, um, you know, a juggle with the patient in terms of understanding how severe this is, that sort of thing. Um, or trying to find a different regimen if it becomes a major limitation. I have had patients that just could not tolerate it because it was so severe. Um, most of our folks I've been able to get off potentially bringing back an H2 um, because they need it maybe three times a week. Um, and that works better. I don't know if you have another approach. We, we I don't know if this is on. We use uh, sometimes a combination separated by about 12 hours. Mm -hmm. So often we try to give the omeprazole in the morning with breakfast, 20 milligrams, and then use H2 blocker at night for breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can usually get someone through without too many complaints. Yeah, that's a great one. And I think the biggest thing is education to the patient. Many of our patients know exactly what they can and can't eat. And it's a little bit of also trying to have them think about that and control that as well. But it's really important for you folks to think about because this probably does compromise um, in, in particular patients. Okay. So he gets his treatment. In this case, this was actually bef obviously before we had um, GP, uh, but he did end up with soft valpatosphere. Um, and at his end of treatment visit, his HCVRNA was not detectable, but his liver enzymes did not look good. Um, they're up, actually, from baseline, and his billy is 1.5. What do you guys think? Any thoughts on what this could be? End of treatment. How common was liver enzyme elevation? I mean, he was a patient with cirrhosis. We didn't give him a protease inhibitor. Um, how common was liver enzyme elevation with these drugs in patients? Not very, right? Any thoughts? So one thing that we did not talk about and we did not test for um, was what? Hep B. That's exactly right. Um, so you guys know this story, right? Don't forget about the Hep B. Um, so in baseline testing, as you know, the recommendation for Hep C is to test for the Hep C, get the genotype, get the viral load, think about whether or not they have liver disease, right? Check their HIV status and check their hepatitis B status. Um, and so I, I led you astray because I put the HIV up there, which I thought would then mean you would not think about the Hep B. You should. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 
As you know, we've had some cases um, that have been reported in the United States. So I'm going to summarize this really quickly. To just this is about awareness. This is mostly about awareness because you are exactly right. Um, a patient with Hep C has always been recommended, at least for as long as I can remember, to be tested for their hepatitis B status and to ensure that they're vaccinated um, if, in fact, they are not immune, right? Um, and so reactivation is something that we know happens. This is where a patient who um, has immune control, either via a, uh, a um, immune inactive state, which is positive surface antigen, normal liver enzymes and a relatively low DNA, um, or someone who has resolved, and we'll talk about this in terms of risk, um, resolved patients, patients that have an, a core antibody and either a surface antibody, and that's how they cleared the surface antigen, or you see neither a surface antigen nor a surface antibody, and you presume that they cleared their antigen and their surface antibody has simply waned, all of those patients have some risk in a graded fashion of reactivation. Okay, um, and when I say reactivation, I mean as a whole. So surface antigen positive, by far the highest risk, right? Isolated core, low risk, but of some risk depending on the agent that's given that can increase the risk of activation. Um, and then the lowest risk is a patient who has an active surface and core antibody, okay? So you all deal with this clinically because, you know, people tech, I mean, our, our oncology colleagues and our rheumatology colleagues check this um, when they're starting uh, rituximab, anti-TNF alpha agents, and things of that sort, right? And, and in many ways, it's the same in that I, I, I talk about this in, in terms of the host risk, which is their serology, their serologic risk. And I just said there's three tiers, one that's really high risk, one that's low risk, and one that's extremely low risk. And then we also have what is the situation? Is it rituximab? The B20, you know, the B cell, you know, um, CD20, what I call bomb, which just knocks out all memory, extremely high risk. So extremely high risk drug, low risk isocore patient, 20% risk of reactivation, right, based on data. Um, so, so these are the drugs that we're used to thinking of, and I think many people didn't recognize it. Even in the interferon days, there was some risk when a patient had been infected with both viruses that when you clear the hepatitis C, there is a risk of reactivation of hepatitis B. And those primary patients at risk that were even seen back in the interferon days were the surface antigen positive patients, right? Um, so I just wanted to make sure everyone in the room was aware of this warning that came out quite a while ago now from the FDA. But I do want to walk through some of the data um, so that you understand how, what this looked like temporally. Um, so one was... The, the definition of this is a conversion of the surface antigen if the patient had been previously surface antigen negative, isocor, or an increase in the DNA in a patient who is surface antigen positive who either had a negative DNA or had a low-level DNA that now flares, right? Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's called reactivation, but those patients may never bump their liver enzymes, right? And when you look at some of the studies that have been done, there is a description of people who have a little bump in their DNA, but their liver enzymes never increase. They never have any true toxicity, and then they bump back down again. So the question is, can you identify the people that are the highest risk for the really bad reactivation like you see in this patient? Um, the timing was such that the majority of patients had evidence of liver enzyme elevation actually while still on therapy, um, although it can happen after. And as you know, with not in the setting of HC therapy, but with rituximab and things like that, you think of a six-month window even after drug as a risk for reactivation, right? Um, 
So I don't want to belabor this that much because it's actually published now, but I will bring your attention to the fact that this is now published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, but three of these patients were what we call isolated core antibody positive, okay? Um, Fifteen of them received therapy. Um, and the problem, I think, and the reason that it's worth putting this in this, this case is that 14 of the 15 were delayed diagnoses, that these patients had evidence of reactivation um, with liver enzyme elevation, but the recognition that this could be hepatitis B was delayed. And so I think what we, what we can gain from this first and foremost is do the things that we all know we're supposed to do, which is check, check for status in these patients, vaccinate people who can benefit from vaccination, and be aware that there's a risk, and if liver enzymes increase, then you need to know where to go. And when patients get put on tenofovir or, or entecovir, they do very, very well. In fact, the data from cancer patients who get rituximab showed that in isocore patients, if all you do is monitor them and then put them on a nuke when they, when they develop reactivation, you will not have a bad outcome, okay? Um, but you do have to be aware of this. That's the critically important point. Um, so I'm going to flip through this just for the sake of time. But this is the FDA recommendation, and as many of you probably know, they made the recommendation to check anti-core. And I think this put a lot of people in a tough situation because that's more money. Um, and this remains a very low-risk group of patients, right? ISO-core patients are extremely low-risk. Um, but there was the single case that everyone knows about all too well that was published where the patient ended up with a liver transplant um, that I think has driven a lot of recommendations. Um, but I can show you here that there's now increasing reports, right? So this one came um, from China and a real-world cohort of patients who were, had, they had very few that were surface antigen positive, and then they had patients who were core positive that either had positive DNA or negative DNA, and you can see that reactivation, even in patients with a positive DNA, a negative surface antigen, right, but a positive antibody, um, none of these patients flared, okay? These are not high-risk patients, and I would argue these are not patients that we need to be monitoring closely, but to be aware that they're at risk, and if liver enzymes do go up, that you need to be aware of this. Um, and the activation, however, in a positive surface antigen patient, right, clearly um, was almost a third, okay? Now there's increasing data. This is the data from the um, of the Gilead um, trials that were, in, that were in Asia. Again, same story, isolated core, no reactivation. There's now been a huge cohort that came out of the VA that I'm sure many of you saw, ISO core, no reactivation. So I think the focus here is on surface antigen positive patients, and if they don't meet an, uh, the criteria to start treatment based on the AASLD guideline recommendations, then you should monitor those patients with DNA and liver enzymes. Remember, the DNA will go up before the liver enzymes. Just because the DNA dough goes up doesn't mean the liver enzymes are ever going to. Um, but once the liver enzymes go up, you should for sure initiate nucleoside therapy, right? Um, but again, the ISO cores, I think, are, are quite low risk. So I just want to make sure that you guys are aware that this recommendation is in the ASOD guidelines. Um, there is currently a recommendation to do this testing um, because it's more about the knowledge of the potential risk, but remember this would be a low-risk group and what I would argue a low-risk setting, right? Rituximab may be a little bit different. Um, and you will find, this is the, this is the current wording, the, the, the new wording that will come out will be even more conservative in terms 
of not a lot of need to do much for these ISOCOR patients. So does that make sense? I'll stop um, and, and pause and say, are there any questions about HEPI reactivation, um, about the kind of options for treatment in a treatment-naive patient and the things to think about? Both for B and C, mm -hmm. but it seems like his hepatitis B is more dominant because it's more. So right now I'm not treating him because he's still positive for meth. So what would be my treatment option when he's clear? Should I treat the Hep B first because it's more dominant? Yeah, yeah. So the first question would be: Does he meet criteria for Hep B treatment based on the ASLD? Then yeah, absolutely. This guy. Otherwise, this guy's an exceptionally high risk for developing cirrhosis, for developing liver cancer. Um, which, remember, patients with Hep B develop liver cancer regardless of stage of fibrosis, right? Um, but his Hep B, Hep C, both active, it sounds like, puts this guy at exceptional risk. So you would definitely want to treat his Hep B. Um, and when you're ready, you'd want to treat his Hep C as well. And I wouldn't waste much time between, <laughs> as much time between the two. Um, I think you could certainly have an argument as to whether or not his meth use means he shouldn't be treated. I mean, many people would argue that, that that shouldn't deny him access as long as he can take his drugs. But it sounds like HEP-B therapy for sure. Um, if he meets those criteria, which is two times the upper limits of normal um, for his liver enzymes, which as you heard from, um, from the good Dr. Sherman, for a man is only 30, right? So if his liver, his AST is above 60, he should be treated. Um, and obviously there's DNA cut off for that as well, but he sounds like someone who should be treated for both. Oh, yeah, I mean, because the nuke therapy for Hep B is going to be on for a while. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't think we have any real feel for if you're going to treat both, what the timing should be. Once he's on the nuke for the Hep B, I mean, I don't know how long you give him. I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't require him to suppress his Hep B before I treated his Hep C, to be honest with you. Um, once the nuke is on board and you see some improvement in his liver enzymes, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to this. I mean, it's, you get different opinions, but I would probably get him on his Hep B treatment first if he meets criteria. Um, give him, you know, four or six weeks just to make sure he's tolerating the drug, and then I'd consider treating him. I don't know. Ken, what do you think? Well, we, we have several of these, and uh, a couple of them came in with HBV viral loads of 17 million or so. <laughs> we're, we're treating those for several months before we... Uh, Or am I just talking loud enough? Is this? Oh, yeah, that's that. different. <laughs> so we've been treating these people for several months before initiating uh, therapy, just so we know what we're dealing with as we go to the next stage of treatment. And, you know, frankly, I would argue that the hep C treatment is not a rush, uh, and particularly because you have concerns about his drug use uh, the Hep B drugs are relatively inexpensive, and that's a pretty good test of compliance mm -hmm. okay. through that process. So uh, I, I think you should treat them a few months and go from there. I think the bigger issue in these Hep Bs, and I'm hoping that it was addressed, but I'm guessing it wasn't, is when do you stop the therapy? Uh, because there's no data. The prior version of the guidelines referred to the AASLD guidelines for Hep B of when do you stop. And those guidelines basically 
say some people stop after one year of therapy if there's a seroconversion and some don't. Mm -hmm. So it's almost useless. Um, Susanna, is there going to be additional guidance? Um, so you, this has come up quite a bit, in fact. Um, and, and, and again, as you said, there is no, no, there's no obvious answer, right, in terms of when you stop these folks. I think that's actually why many people argue, depending on what the need is for initiation, it may be better to monitor these patients, start as few as possible, because once you start them, the withdrawal of treatment could actually be just as harmful, right, in terms of risk of reactivation. And that's why there is this... You know, in this case of the surface antigens, in that one case I showed you, it was only 10 patients, but a third of them reactivated, which means two-thirds of them didn't. Those are patients that were monitored, they didn't reactivate, and those patients never got put on treatment and did just fine. And I do, I think many people, this around, around and around and around of, if you automatically put every single one of those patients on a nuke, then you could cause harm by withdrawing. Um, and so I think what, I'm trying to remember what, the, what, the, what this one, as you said, does not. And I'm trying to think about where we landed on the one that is pending. Um, um, but I, but I, I do believe there, there are more numbers around it. But it is, as you can imagine, there's a lot of hedging of bets because it isn't evidence-based. Certainly if your patient has advanced fibrosis, it's yeah, easy. That's because easy. those patients that's will right. stay on happy treatment exactly. for life. That's right. Yeah, Absolutely. Any, you had another question, yeah. Do you have any experience with patients who take the medication during the day and then over the 8 or 12 weeks go out and continue to use drugs and keep getting little quirks of hepatitis C along the way? That's... That would be a, a Oh, I'm sorry. That would be, to me, reason to make sure they were in some kind of treatment program or something, because it seems like they could keep getting reinfected. Right. And this is, man, do we talk about this a lot. And I think um, there's no doubt that anyone who's treated for hepatitis C and who's actively using should, you should do everything you can to get them in, in, in risk reduction programs, needle uh, programs, needle exchange programs, all of that, right? Um, I've heard, I have not heard of cases where patients actually have rebound of HCV RNA while on therapy for presumed kind of acute on chronic infection. Yeah, I have not seen that reported. Um, I have not. Now, as you already heard, the risk of reinfection is high. Although if you really look at our high-risk cohorts in the United States, it's significantly lower than what's been reported in Europe, to be fair. Um, and I don't think anybody would recommend treating someone actively using who isn't, you know, where you don't at least attempt to engage them in risk reduction in, in programs. But, for, but, but I, don't, I think there are many people um, who would say that using drugs in and of itself should not be a contraindication to treatment. And there are, as you know, clinical trials now that have shown that in substitution programs, et cetera, that you can get the same cure rates. And some people argue, um, as is argued in the guidelines and increasingly will have a role, that the potential for treatment as prevention um, now with the first real evidence of that in the Athena cohort, which you all probably know well since it's an HIV, co an HIV cohort, showed a 50% reduction in that country um, when they eradicated over 70% of their hepatitis C in the Athena cohort. So, right, it's, it's right. So, um, so I think it, it certainly can't just focus on treatment, but I, but I also believe that um, in majority of these patients, you can get them through therapy. Questions. All right, you guys ready for one more case? Okay. So here's another one. 
Um, this is a female, 55-year-old with long-standing HCV. She's been diagnosed with genotype 3 for a long time, actually. In 09, she had a liver biopsy that was Medivere stage 3. So that's that bridging fibrosis that you saw on Dr. Sherman's slide. She also had significant steatosis, which is not surprising in these, you know, three patients and, is, and, and, and um, certainly plays a role in, in, in attempting to clear these folks. Back when she'd had her first biopsy, she had failed peg riba for 24 weeks um, and was really miserable, and therefore she wanted nothing to do with ribavirin again and, and, and did not want to go through treatment with soft riba. Um, here are her labs. So you can see AST65, ALT90, bilirubin 0.9, creatinine, and her platelet count 120. How do you guys feel about that? Boo. Yeah. And not surprising because she was already stage 3, right? So she essentially had cirrhosis back in 09, as far as you can tell. Um, RNA is high. HIV is negative. And this time we were on it. Had to be immune by vaccine. Um, so what else do you need to do before considering therapy in this woman? She is. I would assume that is the case, 100%. I don't care what her fiber scan says. <laughs> Type three and serotic. You may, when you consider doing some resistant testings on her. That's a great question. It's a great question. Yes, the guidelines would say you may want to consider doing some resistance testing on her, because she's a peg riba failure and she has cirrhosis. Um, so the reason I bring this case up is this is going to be a case where you will see some nuance in the guideline um, that is not nuanced uh, by the FDA. And again, we don't expect the FDA to nuance these things, but that's exactly right. Um, so NS5A testing, potentially, depending on which regimen you're going to use, um, right? Um, uh, what else do you guys want in this woman? So it's exactly right. So she was a, you know, she was a stage 3 in 2009. She failed therapy. She's, you know, I mean, I, I don't care what test you would do. There's not a test that I would believe to say that this woman's had resolution of her fibrosis if you believe that her reason for injury was the genotype 3 infection, right, and the setting of steatosis, et cetera. Um, so you have to assume that this woman has severe liver disease, right? Bingo. That's exactly right. So hopefully she's been in care since 2009. She's been getting her liver cancer screening, but there's nothing worse than um, starting someone on therapy only to find that they have a liver cancer in there. Now, do we treat people that have had HCCs, Dr. Sherman? Yes. Do you treat them while they have the HCC or after they've received treatment for their HCC? Aha. Uh -huh. On what? <laughs> okay. There you go. All right. So, so there's, 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 again, nuance of this as well, right, depending, I suspect, on transplant, et cetera. But there are a lot of these patients, the natural history of cirrhosis is that 2 to 4 percent will develop, or 1 to, 1 to 3 percent will develop liver cancer every year, right? Um, and that changes once you cure them. Um, but it's there for at least the next decade after the SVR, right? So she's very high risk. Hopefully she's been getting that, but if she hasn't, you, I, this is one where I won't start a patient on treatment until I have that imaging to be sure I'm not treating an HCC with the DAA, because to my knowledge, that doesn't actually work very well. You'll cure the hep C, but she'll still have the HCC hanging around. And what we mostly do in our practice is treat the HCC um, depending on the circumstances, and, and we uh, cure their HCV after you get um, an EGD on her? Would you get it before you start treatment? That's a great question. Um, I don't feel strongly that she needs an EGD to start treatment. She clearly needs an EGD if she hasn't had one. Absolutely. So that's the thing. So liver cancer screening, monitoring for decompensation, which she's never had clinically, calculating her child pew score, right? 
um, and, uh, and, um, and, and thinking about her EGD screening, which she obviously needs with a platelet count of 120. Do you EGD all patients with cirrhosis, regardless of platelet count? 100%. All right. There you go. The AGA actually says that in patients, um, there's one study, I think, in patients with HCV where if their platelet count is over 150, the yield of uh, EGD is probably low. Um, but um, I think it's the only study that I'm aware of that that's been done. Okay, so these are the big things that you want prior to therapy. All right. So what regimen do you consider? Um, and we'll say that her child pew uh, was a child pew A, okay? She's a child pew A. She's never decompensated, and if you calculate her numbers, she's a child pew A. So GP for 12, and it's genotype 3, peg riba failure patient with cirrhosis, right? So GP for 12, GP for 16, softvel for 12, Daxoff for 24, softvelvox for 12, or albesvirgozapavir plus soft for 12 weeks. I had a question on here, seven, like, did you just make up number six? But, um, all right, so we'll ask, which regimen would you consider? And this, what most of us would consider an extremely difficult to treat patient, right? Did I finally get it right? One more time. And uh, one more time again. There we go. All right. So GP for 12, um, 4%. Um, all right. So 35% of you said GP for 16 weeks. Um, and remember, peg riba failures, we talked about this, cirrhotics. This is the group in Geno 3s that split out to 16 weeks. So you guys are all over this. Um, soft vel for 12, and 13% said that. And this is a peg riba experience patient with cirrhosis. Um, what the current guidelines would say in this setting is that you should give that patient um, uh, ribavirin, right, uh, because of higher rates of relapse in these patients. Um, Daxoff for 24, none of you were all that thrilled about it, although technically it still sits on the guidelines right now. Softvelvox for 12, so 43% of you went for softvelvox for 12. So let me ask you this question. Is softvelvox approved in a peg riba failure in genotype 3? It is not. Isn't that surprising, given um, the other options that we've just talked about, right? Um, so the reason I bring this up is this may be a place where you potentially see things on guideline recommendations that are not FDA approved. Because um, I would argue this is a place where this patient would potentially benefit from that regimen. Um, what about al albesvirgozapavir plus soft for 12 weeks? Did I just make that up? Is there data for that? Does that currently sit in the recommendations for, guideline, for the guidelines? It absolutely does. Yeah. And in this very difficult to treat patient population, you're probably not going to see it go anywhere. Right? So this is an example of a group where we have all of these drugs approved, and yet they're, they're a difficult to treat group, um, and you're talking about 12 to 16 weeks and some off-label use potentially um, to really optimize treatment in this patient population. Go ahead. So in a curve, what if it were child B? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Makes it much more difficult. It makes it extremely difficult. In fact, you'd argue that not, you know, you're, you're looking at Daxoff or Softvel, right? Um, or 
again, you're, you're, you're off label. But this is what I said. We think about all these options, but pretty quickly you can get to a patient who has very few, right? Because once you get to child PBC, one is gone, two is gone, five is gone, six is gone, based on that child PB contraindication, right? So that's exactly right. Thankfully for me, this patient was not a child PB. <laughs> All right, so this, this is good. Um, uh, I was just showing you, we already went through that, so I was showing you what the current recommendations, and I guess I could do this, but what are the current recommendations for a PEG-RIBA treatment experience patient? Um, and again, it is, um, for a minute, I actually panicked, and I don't know why, and I thought this was the pending guideline. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, where did that come from? Um, so this is... <laughs> So this is the Albus Rigozapivir plus soft, and I'll show you the data behind that, I think, is in here. And then this is where we get to soft valve plus weight-based rubavirin for, um, for 12 weeks in this treatment experience patient. Um, and so really, uh, obviously, in, in that patient who would be child PUB, this is what you'd be looking at, right? Because um, this is the only one that would be approved if it was child PUB. So with this one, this is 24 versus 12. So remember, this is the one, too, where I talked about NS5A resistance. If this patient was treatment-naive or treatment experience without cirrhosis, the guidelines say check for NS5A, and if they have it, add ribavirin, okay? That is not something that the FDA recommends. And if they have a Y93, would you add ribavirin or would you try to use a different drug? And this is where the guidelines are going to provide that guidance for you, okay? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in that patient's case, you would want to find something else. That's exactly right, yeah. In her case, if she were a child PUB, you'd have to have that conversation, wouldn't you? Yeah. All right. Um, so resistance. Um, so just to, just to focus on this, because really, as I mentioned, in terms of resistance, um, other than the albus rigozapivir regimen for 1As, there is not a lot of recommendations for resistance testing in the guidance um, or for the FDA except for in these genotype 3 patients, right? And we've already talked about some of the terms, and just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through this, um, but I will make sure that they have my slides for you all um, to think about. Um, but uh, what I will say is that, and I wanted to get, yeah. this is a really nice summary that's done by David Wiles and Annie Lukemeyer um, for the ISUSA group, and this shows you the different resistance um, mutations that we think about. Um, and really what we're talking about here of things that play a big role for the pending guidelines and the pending regimens is really going to be in genotype 3 and how you make this decision about testing. And so remember I said in terms of recommendations for testing in a genotype 3 treatment-naive patient, so none of these regimens are recommended because they don't cover geno 3, right? So what we recommend is for soft DAC, if they're a treatment-naive cirrhotic, you should do NS5A testing and come up with a different plan than just that 12- or 24-week regimen. Treatment-naive non-serotic. What is going on here? I think I just killed the non-serotic NS5A testing. Why don't we recommend NS5A testing in this group, treatment experience serotic on the farthest side? This thing is uh, getting a little squirrely. All right, same recommendation for both of these. Why don't we recommend NS5A testing there? Because they're so high risk, the recommendation was to do ribavirin regardless, right? Um, and in those groups, that's, again, where you're going to see some off, uh, recommendations for potentially for the triple um, uh, because of what we viewed as an unmet need. 
if that makes sense. All right, so I'm not going to belabor this um, uh, with the different slides, but I think I will stop there for the sake of time. And this was just going back to the same case again to ask your, ask your input. So, um, but I think for the sake of time, we'll stop there.